You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now, here's your nine-fingered host, Dan Johnson. It's that time again for another bombastic podcast. Hopefully everybody is having a great day. (laughs) It's it's Thursday, and uh, today my guest is none other than the host of the Wired to Hunt podcast, Mark Kenyon. Uh, I believe this is Mark's second, maybe third time on the podcast, and um, today we do an ultimate BS session. Uh, we talk about everything from travel to western hunts to fly fishing to knocking on doors to access permission to shooting your bow, a whole bunch of just different random things that we're going to cover in this podcast. It's a, it's longer than normal, so I will definitely uh, keep this intro short. Hopefully, everybody uh, enjoys this conversation. It's always good to kind of flip the script and uh, have Mark just be a guest on the, on the podcast and uh, uh, just chit chat with him to see what he's doing. I, I provide my two cents as well on a couple of these uh, topics. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's going to be awesome. (laughs) So before we get into that podcast though, let's hear from Keith Dvorsnak from Ripcord Arrow Rests about why it is important to have your Arrow Rest properly installed. A properly installed Ripcord, um, it's very important. The timing is very critical on where you attach that cord to the downward bus cable. Um, our rest has to be cocked in the up position. So when you're at full draw, the minute you start to let down and that bus cable moves, that launcher's got to be moving immediately on the code red. Um, installing it on the ace, it's very important. It also is cocked in the up position. And right before you get to full draw is when you want to see the launcher come back and the two arrows line up on that rest. That will ensure proper installation and timing of that rest. Without having the proper timing and installation of the rest, you're going to have contact. The rest isn't going to be falling right. You're going to have contact on your veins. Thus, your accuracy is gone. So it's very, very important that you have the rest set up properly. And there you go. Make sure you guys visit ripcordarrowrest.com and uh, check out all the features and uh, different SKUs they have uh, 
for their lineup of arrow rests. Uh, I'll tell you right now, uh, I've been using that product for several years. It's a kick-ass product that has yet to fail me. And uh, until some way, shape, or form it does, I'm not even going to think about uh, switching that up. So go check out a ripcord today. Now, let's get into today's podcast, this ultimate BS session podcast with Mark Kenyon, host of the Wire to Hunt podcast. I'm going to go ahead and start recording in three, two, one. Mark Kenyon, are you there? Yes, sir. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know why I just started laughing. <laughs> because I know this podcast is going down the toilet immediately. That was the game plan, wasn't it? Right. I mean, if anybody's going to have a bad podcast, it should be mine, right? We get all the crap out of the way so the <laughs> so the Wired to Hunt podcast shines, right? That's what I've been trying to make happen. <laughs> you, you keep trying to crap on that during our introductions on my show, but hey. <laughs> well, I tell you what. Today... Uh, we had a guest scheduled, and we were going to talk about so many awesome things, but uh, he had to cancel because he got sick, and I'm like, well, let's just do one ultimate BS session uh, and talk about a whole bunch of random things. Are you down for that? I'm totally down for that. Although, like, I kind of still want to talk about some of the things that uh, we were originally going to co- talk about just because I'm kind of pumped about that stuff right now. But we can go anywhere you want to go, Dan. You are you are the host. You are my boss for the next however long you're going to keep me here. So uh, gotcha. you tell me what you want to talk about. Well, if you're pumped about something, I don't want to get you unpumped to talk about something different. So let's – so first off – Let's let's kind of get right into that portion of it, and you know we'll go into detail on the other show again. But uh, you know what what are you doing this summer? I know you're the kind of guy who likes to travel. Um, let's see what last year you went out to Idaho and Montana for an entire summer. Yeah, for two for two months, a little over two months. Yep. Okay. So what's on your agenda for this summer? I. Uh... I am equally nervous and really, really, really excited about this summer because it's going to be like by far our most uh, crazy summer um, leading into early fall. We've got quite the slate planned out. Um, So first in about one month, we are leaving. We're actually going to go out for the month of April this year. So we are – I haven't even talked about this on the Wired Done podcast, I don't think. So your listeners are getting a little scoop here. but we bought a camper this past fall, and right. over the winter and this last few months, we have been working on renovating that camper, and we are going to live in that for the month of April, the month of July, the month of August, and part of September. So it's a little crazy right now. I'm not 100% sure of exactly where we're going to be because um, I'm working on this kind of public land project that I've alluded to a few times to you Um you know, recently. And this project is going to, um, kind of influence where I'm, where we go this summer. So it's a little bit up in the air, but I can tell you that right now, tentatively, this is what we might be doing in April. We're going to drive out to Utah and Nevada, and then we're going to mosey on up into Wyoming. And during that whole period, we'll be doing some backpacking and hiking and maybe even some mountain biking. Um, 
And then once we go to, to Wyoming, start doing some fishing. And then at the end of the month or early into May, I'm going to try to do a spring black bear hunt on my own with my bow spot and stock. Um, and that's either going to be in Idaho or Northwest Montana. So that's April and early May. And then I'm going to come home for about a month and a half or two months and try to get some turkey hunting here in the Midwest and get my food plots done and finish all that kind of whitetail stuff. Um, and then at the end of June or early July, head back out. And I think we're going to quickly do a quick little drop into Colorado and then spend the most of our time between Wyoming and Montana where I'm going to be doing a bunch of fly fishing, more backpacking. Um, and then at the end of August, I am going to tentatively, again, knock on wood, hopefully this all is going to work out. But at the end of August, I'm going to fly to Alaska with a friend. And the two of us are going to do a DIY public land caribou hunt up uh, on the north slope of the Brooks Range up there north of the Arctic Circle and uh, do some fly fishing and all that for probably 10 to 14 days. And then I'm going to come back to Montana and do a public land whitetail hunt. So that is what my my world looks like for the next six months. I just went cross-eyed <laughs> because I am extremely jealous of you, right? Um, that's a... That's crazy. And, and that's kind of, you know, let's talk a little bit about, uh, about that. When, when I was young, my dad and me and my brother, we would go camping in a whole bunch of state parks around Iowa and we'd go swimming and hiking and we'd sleep in a tent. Um, and then there, there was one time that we took the Amtrak train all the way out to Colorado and did a, um, we stayed in a hotel in Denver for a couple nights, and then we stayed at a hotel up in the mountains, and uh, it was somewhere near Rocky Mountain National Park. And I was—it was so long ago, I can barely remember. Um, I can barely remember going up into the mountains uh, per se, but I remember like driving or riding in the train through the plains and being able to see antelope off of the railroad tracks. So that was that was kind of cool for me, but since then, I haven't really done anything big as far as any backpacking or um, or camping trips, similar to what kind of you're you're going to do. When you were younger, did you have your dad introduce you to that life, or is that something that you kind of picked up on your own? Yeah, so so I kind of had a similar experience to you um, in that I had some really early age experiences like that out west um, that, you know, just like you, I can just barely remember. Um, when I was, I don't know, seven or eight years old, I think it was, so, somewhere in that region, we went and um, did a trip to Washington where we went to Mount Rainier National Park, Olympic National Park, and the Cascades. Right. And that was that was awesome. I can remember little blips of it. And then two years later, I think we went back and we went to Glacier National Park in Montana. And those are the only two times I ever went out west um, as, a, as a young person. But kind of like you, it stuck with me. I can't remember a ton, but I just remember like a feeling right. that was just like pulling at me forever. So then for the, the rest of my, you know, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13 teens, all the way high school into college, I hunted and fished a lot and we, we did camping trips, but it was like, you know, state parks in Michigan, that kind of thing. We never went out of the state, um, never did anything in the mountains. Um, we did a little bit up in the Adirondacks of, uh, New York, 
my mom has some family out there. Um, but it wasn't until college that I finally got kind of like the, the experience to do it myself. Cause my mom and dad didn't do any backpacking. They didn't do any of this kind of crazy Western stuff that I do now. So I actually, it's kind of a weird story, but I'd always been interested, like I said, and my senior year of college, I had, you know, I had some AP credits coming in. So I had like my, the end of my senior year, I had basically my prereqs were all done. I didn't have to take any serious courses. So I was able to take some kind of filler courses, some fun stuff. And there was this class called wilderness preparedness 101. And so I'm like, heck yeah, I'm doing that. So I took that class and it was basically, and have I ever told you about this, Dan? Have I told you this? I don't think so. I don't think so. Okay. Okay. So basically my teacher was like, the American real life version of Bear Grylls. I mean, he had everything like he was, he was that guy except for without the British accent with a big bushy beard. And I was like, I don't know. I wanted to be this guy. He came in every day. Skunk guts. No skunk guts, but he had stories similar to that kind of stuff. (laughs) He, he led, um, he was on all this. He just did the coolest stuff. He led like research projects into the Amazon. He studied wolves and grizzly bears in Alaska and the Yukon and did some kind of study in Montana. And he just did all this crazy stuff out in the mountains and in the wilderness and went up to Antarctica. And um, so he had some incredible stories. And then, you know, he he parlayed all that experience. And I can't – he might have been like an outward bound or Knowles instructor or something like that. And he, he just kind of t- taught the class about all the different basic things you need to understand for navigation and safety and, um, you know, survival and dealing with all the different scenarios you might have out in a wilderness type situation um, and armed me with like the the basic understanding and ideas of what you need to do to go on these backpacking expeditions and stuff. So I had that class. And then that summer I graduated and I told Kylie, who was my girlfriend at the time, I was like, we are going to start backpacking. So we bought some stuff and did a few backpacking trips in Michigan, kind of figured things out. And then, you know, my first full-time job was in California. And so we road tripped across the country to go to California. And on our way, we took three weeks or two and a half weeks or something and backpacked and hiked and camped through Rocky Mountain National Park, Yellowstone National Park and Grand Teton National Park. Um, and that just like hooked me hook, line and sinker. And I've been a sucker for that stuff ever since. And we've continued to go out now every year as much as we possibly can to do that kind of thing. Right. So man, you've been just, you've been just about everywhere as far as the, the big main national parks are concerned, right? Um, you've been to Glacier now, you've been to, uh, Yellowstone, you've been to Rocky Mountain. Have you been to Zion and Yosemite? I've been to Yosemite a couple times, um, Kings Canyon, um, Sequoia National Park, Mount Rainier, Olympic, North Cascades, uh, Theodore Roosevelt National Park, Badlands National Park, Smoky Mountain National Park, Acadia National Park, um, and then the Utah ones I've been to, you mentioned Zion, and then I've been to Arches and Canyonlands. Um, but, you know, one big one I haven't been to is Grand Canyon. I'm dying to get Grand to the Grand Canyon. Yeah. Um, that's that's probably like one of the, the one really big one that, that I haven't been to that's kind of one of those, you know, life listers that you got to go see. And then, of course, the Alaska National Parks. I haven't been out there yet. Right, right. So, you know, on my list, for some reason, Arches – 
is high on my list. I want to get to Glacier again, or uh, not again, but I want to get to Glacier. Those are the two that I really want to visit. Do you have uh, a national park that is your favorite uh, of all of them? Yeah, I think I think Grand Teton is my favorite. Um, I mean, the Tetons, it's just the mountain range itself is like so iconic and it just like grips you. I mean, they're the most like unique, stark mountain range. I think you can see just these massive jagged wall of of mountains coming out of the plains there. So it's it kind of I don't know. um, It grips you. The landscape grips you there. Um, But then also on top of that, I also have like some emotional connection to it because like that was one of the first places that we ever went out west. You know, that was on our very first western trip. We spent a lot of time there. That was like our favorite place during that trip. Um, we came back there like three years later, and that's actually where I proposed to Kylie. We got engaged on top of a mountain overlooking Grand Teton National Park. You're such a um, romantic. <laughs> I, I got to tell the story of this one. I was so proud of it. Okay, um, let's hear it. <laughs> so you know. You're supposed to do something fancy or, you know, grand when it comes to proposing to your wife. But I'm not like that romantic type and like I don't want to go to a nice restaurant and put a ring in a champagne glass or buy her roses or something. (laughs) I was like, how can I do this in like an outdoorsy way um, but still surprise her? And so my idea was that, you know, one of these – one of our plans for the day was we were going to climb this mountain. It's called Jackson Peak. Um, And my thought was when we get to the top. I would surprise her with a ring and, and how I would do it is that she, one of the things she always gives me a hard time about is that I am like a picture whore on our on our trips. She never wants to take pictures. I always want to take pictures. And so there ends up being me constantly telling her, hey, take a picture of this or I'm taking all these pictures, but I'm never in a picture because she never takes them. So I have to like force her. I'm like, hey, take a picture of me here so people know I was actually here. So my thought was when we get to the top of the mountain. I would be like, here, take a picture of me with a, with a DSLR. And she'd be like, oh, you're so annoying. And while she's looking at the camera and getting it set up, I would get down on one knee and surprise her. So that was the plan. But we're climbing up the mountain. And it's, we're not like climbing with ropes. This is just like a really steep trail and some scrambling up some scree slopes and over boulders and whatnot. Um, but as we're going, it's getting pretty tough. And Kylie's like, you know what? I can't. Let's just leave our backpacks here. It's too hot. I'm too tired. Like, let's just leave our packs here. And I'm like, no, nope. We have to take our packs because <laughs> the, the ring was in my pack. And she's like, no, it doesn't make any sense. Just leave our stuff here. And we, we had a fight about it. So you but, put her in a perfect mood to say yes is what you Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So luckily she gave up on it. I kept the pack and we got to the top and, and I did exactly what I said. I tried to get her to take a picture and she rolled her eyes at me and said how annoying I was and and she started fiddling with the camera, and when she looked up, I was on the pinnacle of the mountain, but kneeled down holding the ring. And uh, it was super cool, and she said yes. And now that, that mountain and, and that whole area, Jackson and, and Grand Teton National Park, it's, it definitely holds kind of a, a special place for us. I wish I could say that my proposal was as cool as yours, but it wasn't. Um, we were. I did take my uh, wife to a state park to propose to her. Oh, nice. And, um, it was on kind of a, a fishing dock, and I had her. I, I was setting up. I, I was. I said something like, "Hey, I'm gonna do some filming." I had a camera, a, a little camcorder. I'm gonna do some filming of this, uh, this lake, whatever. And I said, "Hey, check out this uh, this little spider web over here." And I, so it, so she would turn her back to me, <laughs> and then I turned the camera on her, and then 
my idea was I was going to take a couple steps toward her, get down on my knees. So when she turned around from looking at the spider web, it would just be this, this graceful connection and my hand was up. But instead, <laughs> instead, I took two biggest steps <laughs> close to her and she backed up real fast. So, you know, like when you're running into someone, like almost like in a cafeteria with a plate of food, right? just kind of crunches in between you. I uh. had this ring and it was, it was just so awkward and it was, it's hilarious now because we can uh, look back and laugh on it. But, uh, um, I wish I would have got a different angle of it because I would have won a hundred thousand dollars on America's funniest home video. I swear <laughs> to God. That's awesome. And that just seems appropriate. <laughs> I know exactly. Right. Um, and you know, uh, there's no real special meaning to that area. You know, like you were on top of a mountain. I was at a lake that tested, uh, high for, it's not Ebola, but it's one of those like water bound <laughs> pathogens or whatever. So, a lot, of, a lot of beaver fever in that. Yeah, room, exactly. That exactly. <laughs> nobody, nobody uh, swims in it anymore be- because uh, they think they're like there's it tested high for <laughs> some kind of disease. It's like runoff from cattle. Oh, it's oh. it's just gross. But uh, wow. But <laughs> and and by now the listeners of this podcast have learned that this is not one hundred. This isn't going to be a one hundred percent hunting podcast, only because. <laughs> I'm just a huge sucker for adventure and going and experiencing um, new and different things that, you know, revolve around nature. But, yeah. uh, and I, and I know you are too, but while you're in kind of transitioning over to hunting, while you're out there, either this last year or this year, are you going to be looking at any potential hunting sites? Um, I mean, have you been drawing or uh, gathering any like preference points for certain states? And while you're out there, are you going to be looking at different zones to possibly go hunt in someday? Yeah, definitely. Um, so first, one thing I'm going to do in April is I'm going to do a lot of shed hunting, which I'm pretty pumped about. And excuse me, I got the hiccups over here. Um, so I'm going to do a lot of shed hunting. And then, yeah, I'm probably going to do a little bit of scouting. Uh, because, well, first off in that spring trip, I'm also going to try to do a black bear hunt, which I've never done before. Um, so going to do a spring black bear hunt. And so right now I'm trying to do some studying and learning and figuring out how to do all that. And I'm just going to do it by myself. I'm going to do a solo spring black bear hunt, spot and stock stock with a bow. Um, I probably will not come anywhere near a bear. I probably won't even see a bear, but I'm going to try. Um, and that'll be pretty cool, I think. And then when I'm back out there in the summer, uh, probably will try to do a little bit of work, um, prepping for that whitetail hunt in Montana. Uh, last year I found, you know, as you know, I found some public land and hunted it. Um, that was some state land I was hunting, but this year, again, I'm trying to focus on federal public lands and bring attention to this, you know, as you've talked about, and as I've talked about this crazy movement there out there that's trying to get rid of our federal public lands. So my goal this year is to, um, keep all my public land hunting on those federal public lands. And so I want to find some BLM ground to try to chase some whitetails this year. So part of my mission this summer will be trying to figure out what, where I'll be going for that. Um, and then to what you said earlier, I'm, I'm going to be, I am putting in points for 
Wyoming and Montana um, for future elk hunts, um, and maybe Colorado eventually too. I'm not. I'm probably not going to do an elk hunt this year just because everything else I've got going on. Right. But um, but I want to try to go somewhere different because you know the spot you and me went that continues to get more pressure, yeah. and I, I want to try somewhere different. Maybe maybe get into one of these units that not that's not an over the counter unit where there won't be quite as many people and. You know, it'd be fun to go somewhere where there's actually elk bugling and all that kind of good stuff. <laughs> so, and they're so not ten thousand kind of feet above you. Exactly. So that's kind of my goal for for the next elk trip. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it'll be a busy summer this year, prepping for a couple of those hunts and scouting and 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 all that good stuff. It's it's you know as you as you've found now, and and I love I absolutely love my Midwest deer hunting. That's never going to change. But. Amen. There is also this other really cool other type of hunting that I found I really enjoy too that I can do as a complement to my Midwest whitetail hunting, which is all this stuff out west. And that just presents a totally different experience in a totally different landscape, and I'm a sucker for that too. So I'm excited to do more and more of that. All right, so this caribou hunt that you're going to be going on, um, caribou is probably other than elk and mule deer caribou is probably next on the list as far as bucket list animal to shoot for me anyway why caribou for you yeah so it's alaska of all places yeah i mean it's just been one of those animals that has you know just fascinated me and then also the landscape where caribou are fascinates me um i've wanted to go to alaska forever I want to do a hunt that gets you that um, iconic Alaskan experience, but I want to do it my own. I don't want to use a guide, uh, and I don't want it to be a hunt that's going to cost me thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. So the more I talked to people that had experience up there, the more it came back to caribou being a great option for a first-time Alaskan DIY hunt. Um, There's ways to get to places that caribou are. You can either – you can drive up this one highway and actually access some pretty good caribou, caribou territory, or you can drive and then take a little puddle jumper, a, you know, a, a bush plane and get dropped off into some of these places and, and see, you know, tremendous landscapes and habitats and, and also get into some great hunting. So it seemed like it was a great opportunity hunt. You know, I have, I have a relatively decent chance of killing something. I have a great experience and be in a really cool place. And it was doable for someone like me who, you know, doesn't know what he's doing, at least in that particular situation. So that's why I chose caribou. Um, and it, you know, cheap, it's relatively cheap. Um, so that was kind of why I landed there. And then, um, you know, I'm in the midst of trying to plan it all now. Cause I think, I think when we talked at the ATA show this year, you said your goal was to potentially go after moose is moose just a little bit more expensive than a caribou. Yeah, I mean, I've thought about moose was one of the things I thought about too, but actually um, two things. Number one, just the logistics of dealing with a moose seemed like more intimidating for a first-time hunt than a caribou, uh, especially if it was just me and one other guy, like breaking down a moose and getting it to wherever we're going to go. And I don't know if I wanted my first Alaskan hunt to be, you know, with a pack raft or something like that. I mean, that's something I don't have any experience with either. So I was trying to think of like all the things that go into a moose hunt on your own seems a little bit more daunting than what a caribou hunt would entail. So that was part of it. And then the second part was actually, um, I can't remember if you were on this podcast episode or not, but, uh, I think you were Giannis Patelis, um, field producer for meat eater in one of our pockets. I think you had a drop off at the end. I think that's what happened. You dropped off. And I asked Giannis, um, his thoughts on, you know, a first time hunt in Alaska for someone like me. 
and he mentioned moose and he mentioned caribou but he said you know what i would i would say if you want to have that iconic alaskan experience a great first way to do it is with a caribou hunt because you can you can experience so much and see so much country lots of times in moose habitat you get dropped off and you're just in thick cover you're in thick pine cover by a lake and all you see is the trees and the lake or the river and it's just like bush and it's very very narrow what you see Um, he said you go caribou hunting and you are in this area where you see for miles and miles and miles and everything is so vast and it's a it's a very alaskan aesthetic experience um and when he said that i was like that makes a lot of sense like that would probably be uh, I'd love to experience it all, but that would be a great first way to, to really get, you know, if I'm not able to hunt Alaska a lot and I want to make sure my first trip is as good as I can get, that seemed like the way to do it. So I tell you what, that is Alaska, whether it's for some, for some reason, I am drawn to TV shows that are, that take place up in the Yukon or out in, uh, uh, Alaska, where they're floating down a river, they stop, they get out, they go do whatever for a day or two, get back, float down a little bit more, get out for a day or two. For some reason, that right there to me seems like just some that like a really kick-ass time. Oh yeah, that that does seem awesome. I uh, you, you saw that movie, that film Beyond the Roar? Uh, yes, I did. Yeah, with the with the guys from Rock House Motion, Aaron Hitchens. Yep. Um, I mean, that's like an amazing looking trip. I'd love to do that someday. I would just love to do it with somebody who knows what they're doing a little bit better than me, because right. I I would I would for sure swamp that boat and kill myself. Right. So um, so for now I'm gonna stick to land, but but yeah, man, you know I I think you and me have talked about this in the past that like I just imagine all the time when I'm out west, coming over a hill or something, or driving down the road, and I just sit there and I think. What must this have been like 200 years ago when Lewis and Clark oh, yeah. came out here first? Like how incre- – I mean it's already incredible. Can you imagine this with no buildings, with no roads, without the millions of people, the herds of millions of animals and the wide, wide open? I mean that must have been so, so incredible. And I always dream and wish like, man, I wish I was around back then. And in Alaska, in some of these areas, it's still that frontier. You know, yeah. I mean yeah, there's people in there. Compared to lower 48, I mean, it is still the frontier, and that is very intriguing. And, like, if I was single um, and not doing the things I'm doing now, man, I would be living up there off the land, being a guide or hunting and fishing and living – just doing that kind of thing because that, that's pretty awesome. So I forgot what I was going to say, but it really <laughs> doesn't matter. It, it doesn't matter. Oh, I know what I was going to say. The uh, – you know, you talk about what it must have been like 200 years ago, right? When, you know, the first time people were kind of going through some of these areas. I always kind of think about how tough people back then had to be compared to, you know, what people are like today, right? Oh, yeah. We're, we're such sissies now. <laughs> I know. Like, and, and from a gear standpoint, okay? So these guys who are climbing these these Western explorers who are like the first, you know, guys to ever climb the Rocky mountains or the Indians, right. Who are living in these areas and and climbing. They had, they didn't have Sitka gear. They didn't have these kick-ass boots, right. They didn't have these compound bows and all these things and they made it right. Yeah. You know, they might've died of exposure at some point (laughs) along along the way, but lost a few toes here and there, but they did it. Exactly. And 
you know that uh, what was that movie that that Leonardo DiCaprio uh, DiCaprio was in? Mm, the Revenant. The Revenant. The Revenant. Yes, something like that kind of lifestyle just makes me realize every day that it's very hard to be more of a man than guys like that. Yeah, no chance. <laughs> no chance, right? We, we're we're always going to be below them on the on the uh, hierarchy, exactly. but uh, something to aspire to, right? That's right. That's right. So, I don't know if you know this or not, but Saturday, I of this last weekend, I acquired a fly fishing rod. I and, saw the picture. I, I forgot to even ask you about that. Yep, and I don't know why I decided I wanted to get one just because, you know, I've been fishing with a, your, your standard bait caster and, and, you know, for, for several years. And I, I felt, okay, I want to take the next step. I see all these people with big smiles on their faces. The very first, you know, or when I'm flipping through my Instagram page, by the way, or, uh, you know, my Instagram feed, by the way, which is bad, business i i hate instagram (laughs) because i get so jealous of people like oh here's me you know like you oh here's a picture (laughs) of me i'm up in uh at the grand tetons or i'm here i'm there i'm just like and i'm in my cubicle (laughs) so in a way i really hate your guts fair enough (laughs) but (laughs) fly back to back to fly fishing I, i i set it up i followed the instructions i tied the 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 floating line what's that called is there a specific specific term for it well there's there's your backing which is the very very bottom line that's closest yep. to the spool and then yep. your floating fly line it's just called fly line okay um and then after that you should have a, tied on a leader yep i did it's basically monofilament right yeah it's usually a tapered though so it's thicker towards the back end and it gets smaller and smaller as you get further out to the end okay I don't know about that, but it because it, it came kind of in a package. Okay. So it was all in a package, and uh, I went out and I, you know, did some practice in the grass and and felt you know pretty good about it. And here's where your normal fisherman who is just now getting introduced to uh, fly fishing just like that thought process kind of stopped is when I didn't realize how much back cast there was so the first two times i tried to cast into this farm pond that my parents own uh i got caught in trees behind me yeah (laughs) it's not gonna be the last time that happens either (laughs) right right so when did you start fly fishing so i had a i had an introduction to fly fishing when i was kind of young me and my dad did like a one-day fly fishing course when i was probably i don't know 14 or something Gotcha. So so we had like a one day thing together where we kind of learned and we went out and fished for the day and we went out a handful of times after that. But then I, I basically dropped it. Um, so then from the time I was like 14 until the time I was like 27 or 28, um, I didn't fly fish at all. But kind of like you, I was seeing people posting pictures of fly fishing and you see these different films and stuff. And I'd always look at it right. like, oh my gosh, that just looks so awesome. Um but it was like intimidating a little bit because there is it, it it is so much different than regular flat regular fishing, um, so I knew I wanted to do it, and finally I watched this one film and um, oh, I'm gonna blank on what it's called right now, but I should send it to you afterwards because it's just such an awesome little short film. It's like seven minutes long and it's just beautiful. Do you know who and made I, it? 
something kitchen sink, kitchen sink productions or something. And okay. it's it's about this this trip these guys took down to um, Lee's Ferry, Arizona, which is on the Colorado River. And they did a fly fishing trip in like the Red Rock Canyons down there. Gotcha. And it was just so well done and the music and everything. It just made it look so incredible. And I was like, I have to just do this. So like after watching that, I bought a fly rod from Cabela as a kit. And I just started doing the same thing you did. I just started practicing casting in the yard. And I had no idea what I was doing. But then the next summer, well, the yeah, year after that is when I started uh, doing our summers out west. And then that's when I really learned because there's only so much you can figure out casting in your yard. Right. Um, it is like there is so much to it. It is very challenging. Um, there's so many different opinions on different things, even just like figuring out some of the basic knots and what to put on. Um, it's like becoming a bow hunter from day one you know it's like that early early stage trying to figure out all this nuanced stuff so i would just like go to fly shops and walk in there this is kind of cool it's kind of like at a pro shop where you go into it and these people are there to sell stuff but then they're also great you know as far as resources and i'd say hey i don't know what i'm doing uh can you help me get set up what fly should i be trying here what you how should i be fishing them i'm sorry i'm an idiot please forgive my ignorance but can you help me and these guys were always super helpful and I, I've just been doing that the last few years and slowly learning and reading a few books and stuff. And I'm, uh, I'm still not great, but I'm, I can catch fish now sometimes. So, uh, it is, it is so cool. I'm, I'm really addicted now. Yeah. I'm getting, uh, excited to get out and especially with this crazy weather that we're having we're, right now, I'm looking out my window, it's February and it's 70 degrees outside. That's nuts. Yep. Global warming, right? <laughs> it's it, it looks that way with this right now it's crazy i saw we've got 67 degrees coming tomorrow so on fly fishing i i started getting the hang of it right and then my arm i don't know does your arm get tired after a while your shoulder or, or does that mean you're doing it wrong uh i don't know i can't say i really remember if it gets sore or not it might i don't know um i don't i can't remember myself feeling that way but it definitely like there's a certain the biggest thing is like establishing a rhythm, understanding right. the rhythm of when you do your back cast and then you need to wait long enough for that line to load up and then you do the forward cast. It's all about rhythm and then momentum. So right. you're utilizing that force of the line pulling back on your rod and then you're utilizing that forward momentum then to to cast your fly ahead. But, you know, with a fly different than a regular bait casting you know when, you, when you've got your spinning reel you're casting the lure the heavy lure right that's the weight that's being thrown with a fly rod the lure the fly it doesn't weigh anything so you're not actually casting that you're casting the weight of the line right. so it requires a totally different cast a totally different feel um and that takes time and then when you introduce being out on water and trying to deal with trees and different obstacles and then trying to put the cast in the right place and all that kind of stuff it adds a whole lot of stuff you know it's and it, people say it all the time. It really is very similar to the level of detail you have to get into with bow hunting um, right. as compared to other kinds of hunting. This is like the bow hunting of fishing. And um, because of how much I know you love bow hunting, I know you're going to love this too. Right. Yeah. I uh, So, you know, I watched my three YouTube videos. I felt like that gave me gave me enough of an education to go out and give it a try. And <laughs> the they said that your line shouldn't snap. Right. Or when you're in your back cast, if you're bringing it forward too early, you're going to hear a kind of a, a whipping noise. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's and you're going to have all sorts of issues. Yeah. When you, yeah. when you go too forward too fast. Yeah. So at the end of the day, I 
I'm reeling, I reel the line in and I go set it in the garage and my father-in-law comes up and goes, Hey, are all these knots supposed to be in the line? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, buddy. So I got work to do when it comes to becoming a fly fisherman. Yeah. Well, just, just know that, yeah, you're going to take some, you're going to take some serious lumps early on, but, uh, but keep with it because it is a very, very cool feeling when it does start coming together and what what's fun about fly fishing, at least for me, is a is a relatively still relatively new fly fisher. Um, even catching little fish on a fly is like right. a freaking hoot compared to you know catching bluegill on a regular rod. Like I'm like pumped to catch a six inch fish still. Um, so it kind of brings you this whole new level of enjoyment again, and then um, everything from there just gets better and better. It's uh, yeah, it, there's something pretty pretty darn cool about them. Yeah, I'm I'm definitely excited about. Uh getting more into that now all right summertime um in kind of getting back to whitetails are you do you shoot your bow all year long i wish i could say i do but i usually slack in the winter i'm i'm guilty of not shooting during the winter just because i don't want to be out in the crappy freezing cold michigan winter weather so i have actually been out shooting in this warm spell um so basically it's, it's a weather thing for me I don't have a great spot to shoot indoors that's big enough to really shoot. So I shoot basically from as soon as it gets comfortable to be outside all the way through the end of hunting season. Um, but then once you get snow and cold, then, I, then I'm then i a little bit of a wuss. Do you feel that uh, every year you're retraining your muscle memory to get back into the swing of things or – do you do you have the feeling where you can just pick your bow up and you, and get right back into it? No, I definitely when I when I when I miss a few months like that in the winter and I come back, I definitely have like a a readjustment phase, like yeah. that first week or something like that. You know, I, I I've tried to the past few years get better and better at this and starting earlier, um, but I know that those first that first week or so, I'm just focused on shooting lots and lots of arrows at short distances just to reacquire that muscle memory. And then I, then I start lengthening the distance and focusing on the small things and accuracy and longer different situations and everything like that. But that first week it's just shoot a lot of arrows, get the feel back, get your muscles rebuilt back up. Um, and you know, if I was better about it and did it all year round, I guess I wouldn't need to do that. But, um, but I'm, I'm trying to at least get that done early in the spring instead of, you know, unfortunately some people do that just before the hunting season. Um, and I think that that can be a mistake for some people. So I try to do that in the spring, keep it going through the summer. By the time hunting season comes along, I'm, I'm feeling pretty good. So from a from a gear standpoint, what kind of person are you? Are you the type of type of person that will stick with the same exact product as long as it works good, or are you the kind of person who likes to try new uh, things that come out every year, new products? I am, I'm typically the former. So I am the first thing you said there. I, I find something that works and I, if it ain't broke, don't fix it is usually what I do. Um, I occasionally try new things. Like I've tried some new broadheads over the past few years. I've bounced around a little bit on broadheads, but, um, you know, shooting basically the same bow, basically the same arrow, basically the same release, everything for like, I don't know, many years now. Um, I, I'm not the type of gear guy like you are. I think you're you're more detail focused with gear. I just find something that I trust and then I and then I just 
no more questions. I focus, I end up spending more of my time thinking about the strategy. I'd rather spend less time thinking about the gear. So it's like, all right, I want to get something good, solid that I know works. And then I'm moving on. Right. So one thing that I am trying to focus on for this upcoming year is form and just basically becoming a better overall archer. And you know, you hear talk about people using different types of releases, like whether it's a thumb release or a t- back tension release to, mm-hmm. you know, gain better um, accuracy. Are you using a trigger release currently? Yeah. yeah. Yep. I just use a, a, a basic trigger release, um, and I feel pretty good with it. I, I really – I've never had the desire to switch to a back tension or something like that. I, I like to have the control. Um, I feel like I would, I, I do, I've not been at the point where I feel like there's been any kind of issue where I needed to take extreme measures like that. Um, I, I would feel uncomfortable not being able to, to release the bow when I wanted to and be like, all right, go, go, you know, and keep moving yeah. your shoulder back. That seems, that seems like an uncomfortable situation, but I've never used one. So I'm speaking just from assumptions. Right. So overall, do you feel that you are a good archer? Yeah, I don't think, uh, you know, I wouldn't shoot like a 3D tournament and expect to win it. Um, I'm never going to be like a tournament archer who's some incredible um, type of shot in that degree. But I have 100% confidence in my ability as a hunter, Um, you know, in hunting situations with the maximum effective ranges that I set for myself. um, I'm very confident in that. Um, Now, I've certainly had my share of mistakes. Um, I can certainly still get better, but I'm, I'm definitely, I definitely feel confident in my ability to, you know, quickly, cleanly, ethically kill a deer 99% of the time, barring, you know, these freak incidents sometimes and, and mistakes. Right. What is your, when you're in the timber, I, there's no, I don't even cut my shooting lanes when I'm in some of these locations outside 25 to 30 yards because I I'm in that tight of an area where these, you know, I'm, and I'm talking about tree stand hunting in the Midwest right now. Mm-hmm. Um, how far, how far do you cut your shooting lanes? Uh, what's your, what's your range for, uh, for a whitetail uh, up in Michigan or Ohio where you hunt? Yeah. So, so 40 yards, anything within 40 is like, I'm for sure shooting it. Um, at times I've, thought of expanding that to 50 um like a few years ago as I, I told myself all right i, I could shoot one at 50 fine um but then you know i had that jawbreaker incident where yeah. even though that was like 25 yards i still you know rushed that shot and that kind of that kind of made me a little more conservative and just reminding myself that yeah sure you can shoot to 50 60 70 yards when you're on the range but there's so many other variables when you're out there with a real wild deer in the real, you know, life situation. And it's probably smarter to, to keep it even closer just to avoid as many of those bad situations like that as you can. So I moved it back into 40. And so for the past, I don't know, three, three years now or something, that's kind of been my self-imposed, um, line, but I'm sure I could, I'm sure. And I may expand that someday. Um, cause I do feel comfortable shooting out past that. Um, but right now it's, it's 40 yards for white tails and then, you know, elk and stuff like that. I push that out to like 60. Right. So do you do anything different as far as a practice regimen for 
whether you're practicing for a western hunt or you're practicing for a tree stand hunt just practice longer ranges you know um you know when i started hunting out west i started shooting long range a lot more um like shooting 70 yards um i don't shoot some people shoot 80 90 100 yards i i can't do that or i i, I could i have but i'm not going to do that as some type of serious form of practice so i'll shoot a lot at 60 though um a little bit past that and just that's my main focus is just making sure i'm dialed in at that range to hit you know an, an elk vital zone um and standing and then also one thing i did that helped me i think a lot when it came to preparing for those western hunts was adding in some physical fitness to it as well so where my house is i've got my house is up on a hill and then my yard goes down a steep hill relatively steep hill behind it so i stand on the top of that hill and my target is at the bottom I'll shoot a 50 or 60 yard shot and then I'll sprint down to the target, grab that one single arrow, run back to the top of the hill 60 yards away, shoot again and keep doing that. And that just introduces that heartbeat, that heart rate issue and, and that physical um, experience that you'll also be dealing with when it comes to a, an actual Western hunt, you know, running up a mountain and then having to shoot an elk at 50 yards or something like that. So I do that kind of thing, prepping for that kind of hunt. And then during deer hunting season, uh, I do more of like different scenarios like sitting down or kneeling or leaning, you know, a time we have to lean around a tree branch or holding a full draw for a minute or something like that. I try to replicate some of those scenarios just to keep me um, ready for those different things because, you know, as you know, we don't always have that perfect right in front of you, 25 yard shot. Like we practice all the time, you know, just standing there in the yard. Right. Let me tell you a little bit about my experience with that. What you just said about like the long range, uh, shooting, running back or running down, getting the arrow, running back up. I pulled my, I put the arrow back in my bow drew back and I shot the, uh, slide that was connected to my kid's playground set. I shanked, <laughs> <laughs> I shanked the shot so bad because I was breathing so heavy. And that just tells you that I need to work on more things in my life than just archery. <laughs> Better find that out now than on the mountain. That's right. That's right. Oh, All right. Awesome. Let's see. Let's see. Um, prep for this upcoming season, right? Um Oh, I so want to talk to about do. yeah. I want to talk about Ohio, a lease that you have in Ohio, right? Yeah. Um, at one time, that piece of property was loaded, right? Yeah. Tons of awesome bucks. Sounds to me like through conversation and, and some of the Wired to Hunt podcasts that we've done, that property is not what it used to be, right? Yeah. Um, but I'm trying not to like draw too many conclusions from it. Uh, okay. Because you know, it's it's been just a one year kind of blip, um, so I don't know if it was just you know a random set of occurrences that happened while we were there, or if it's a you know indicating of a bigger issue. I don't know yet, but uh, but yeah, we we had a lot of success there the past few years. Um, last year it was just kind of rough. I did still kill you know a nice a nice buck, but it was it was tough. Right. So. With you know going into this upcoming season in Ohio, um, are you going to continue that lease, or are you going to be doing some door knocking down in that area? So the plan, as far as now, is to continue that lease because you know it is still a, a great 
known quantity. Like we know in general, it's it's a great spot, and there've been some great deer, and we know it well. Um, but you know, I definitely am at the point where I'd like to explore other options, just because you you never know. I've been saying this for a few years now that I need yeah. to do this because this is like just given the landowner situation, and everything. It, I feel like it probably won't last. It's not a long term thing. Yeah. Um, so I need to find some other options. I just, to be honest, have been lazy about it and haven't gone out and find it, found it down there yet. So that's on my to-do list this, this summer or spring is to try to try to find some other options because I like that general area. I'd love to continue hunting down there. Um, so we'll see. So one, one thing that really pisses me off when I hear a guy, it doesn't matter what state you're in. Um, you know, obviously there's, public land almost in every state some states have more than others but the guys who say well i don't have any place to hunt well how many times and then you get into conversation with them and you ask them about uh you know how many doors have you knocked on they're like well i don't i don't knock on doors yeah you know it's like i'm waiting for someone to invite me on their property where i where i live that's not gonna happen right (laughs) basically where anyone lives exactly so I've knocked on a ton of doors in my lifetime and it's helped gotten, you know, get me on some pretty good property. I remember when I first moved into the, the, the town that I live now, there was one weekend, a Saturday and a Sunday, I drove around and I knocked on 22 different doors uh, to bow hunt permission to solid day. Yep. And two days straight. And I got told no 22 different times. <laughs> All right. So I was pretty uh-huh. discouraged. And I think that probably leads to people giving up on the door knocking uh, side of things. Yeah. So from kind of from your standpoint, how have you learned to, I guess, knock on doors with the most effectiveness? Yeah. I mean, you know, I don't like doing it to be honest. Like I'm not that kind of person. Um, even though I talk about deer on this podcast all the time and you know, I'm out there as far as hunting media world, I'm actually kind of an introvert. Um, so lots of times I avoid small talk. I I just like to sit in my house and be a little hermit and read or, or hunt or do that kind of stuff. So I'm not like you, I can't just like, or I, I can, but it doesn't bring me joy to go walk up to a random person and start yapping it up with them. And so that kind of hurts me in this regard because I need to like push myself outside my comfort zone. So at first I, I didn't want to do it, but to your point, you get to the point where if you want to hunt, you have to do this. I mean, unless you've got a bunch of money and I don't have a bunch of money to be able to lease up a ton of stuff. So I've had to um, knock on a lot of doors to try to find places. And and here's what I've done that's helped me. Being you know kind of shy in that way and kind of introverted is I make a day. I make a like I, I do everything at once. So I make a list in an area. I find a bunch of properties that look good. I find out who lives there, get their information, and then I say, okay, this Tuesday at five o'clock or whatever. I'm going to go knock on like 10 doors or 12 doors or whatever. And in that way, I just need to, you know, I just, I just need to suck it up once. I build up the confidence to do it once. And then what, excuse me, once you've done one, it's easier to do the second. And then it's easier to do the third and the fourth and the fifth. And then you just start, you build up that kind of snowball effect. And then all of a sudden you knock out 12 doors. And by that ninth, 10th, 11th, 12th, it's not 
you know, it's not nerve wracking anymore. It's not an issue anymore because you've been doing it and you're like, ah, that's fine. You know, worst case scenario, they say, oh, no, sorry, we already hunt there. Um, and so for me, that's the way I've been able to do it. I, I put it all into one evening or one day. I get that momentum. I knock through them. And then, you know, I was able to cover a lot of ground. And it's a numbers game. Like you said, you can knock on 20 doors and you might get you might get all no's. But you have to do a lot to get the occasional yes. So you just go into it with, with you know, reasonable expectations, expecting a lot of no's. Don't get down on yourself when you get no's. Um, and every once in a while, if you keep trying and, you know, you keep trying, things eventually work out. So I do that. Another little trick I have, which um, has helped me a number of times, is every time you, you get that foot in the door, just you're talking to them and they say no, let's say. I always try to keep chatting them up just a little bit. You know, polite, you know, oh, thanks so much. I appreciate, you know, or, you know sorry to bother you, but thanks for telling me what's going on here. Do you happen to know of anybody else around here who might be willing to let me hunt? Or do you know anywhere else I should check? And those things have led to new properties for me a lot of times. Just start talking to them. And you never know where that conversation might go or who they might point you to. Um, that's helped both in deer hunting permission and shed hunting permission for me. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, you know, kind of going back to the conversation, you know, the, the conversation that you just had about, uh, you know, gaining momentum throughout the day, knocking on a lot of doors. I, I always save the property that I want the most for last and yeah, what that idea. what that has what that does is allows you to get comfortable because even even for me you know you'll walk up to someone and all people are different we know this and they can throw a wrench just by saying something completely random or you start to stutter and <laughs> and you, you come off looking like or sound like an idiot uh, right in front of them and then they're just like okay who's this whack job you know you're gonna uses binoculars to watch me take a shower. So, <laughs> okay. That, yeah. that was random, but you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like the, you get that momentum, you get comfortable with it and then you go and it, it's, you know, you're kind of, you're kind of like a salesman and I don't understand how people have big issues with that. Uh, again, I'm a BS or I can go and talk to just about anybody, but it's something that I feel if you can learn, it can, it can open up so many doors for people to hunt property that may not be, you know, hunted. You know, I always, I always think of it like this, the, the movie, the Sandlot gang, right? Love it. Love it. They're hitting all the balls over the fence and he's got this giant dog and they're so scared. And there's these rumors of the guy living in this house being just this creep who is, angry and hates kids but they go and they knock on his if they go and knock on his door he's the nicest guy ever he'll talk to you and they give him a babe ruth baseball and james freaking earl jones yeah james earl jones well you could knock on a door and it could be james earl jones Yeah, just imagine if james earl jones answered the door and gave you permission to bow hunt his property we should all be knocking on doors with those hopes i know i know So I and that's what I'm kind of getting at is man I if I had the time I I would just drive around all day long and knock on people's doors and if if anything it, it builds those relationships up so if you get a trail camera stolen or a tree stand stolen or you got a flat tire or you see somebody who needs help along your path 
you've created that relationship with them where they feel comfortable, they know who you are, and it's it's just building a foundation for being able to hunt in, you know, you come back two years, they say no, and then you come back in another year or two, and then they say yes, because you're consistent, they've, you've established some kind of relationship with them, so... I just, I feel more people, if more people should do that, you know, it would be better, you know, there'd be less pressure on public ground, except for where I live, there's no hunting really available. Yeah, don't bother Um, knocking on doors there, right? right, Exactly. (laughs) Amen. Amen. Stay far, far away from Dan. (laughs) That's right. That's right. In all seriousness though, Dan, um, that's like one of the very easiest, most achievable ways to improve your deer hunting success. Right. Just by getting new places to hunt. Like right. you don't, you know, location means so much. I mean, you can be the yep. best hunter from a tactic standpoint in the world, but if there just aren't deer or aren't mature deer or whatever kind of bucket is or deer it is that you're after, if they just don't live there, you're never going to kill it. Or you're going to kill it once every 10 years versus finding some better places where all of a sudden you can be killing a target buck every year or whatever. Um, Finding the right place is a huge, 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 huge deal. Right, right. The last thing I kind of want to talk to talk about is stages of a hunter. Right. We all, you know, we all kind of go through different stages in our in our life uh, as hunters. And I'm a bow hunter, so I'm, I'm kind of gonna. And I know you are, so I want to kind of go towards the the bow hunting. Um, aspect of it as far as you know when you're younger and and feel free to jump in and fill me in if if maybe I'm missing a stage here right so you're a young hunter you're bow hunter you're getting used to your equipment you're getting used to feeling comfortable you're killing basically just whatever walks by and then you go through the next stage which is probably okay I'm going to try to shoot uh, whether it's antler size or age I want to shoot a two-year-old then like so the stage is like the growth or the ladder you know you're laddering up then you hit a stage where you're only targeting mature whitetails and then at the end of that stage you feel like you've accomplished your goal there you may target a specific buck you know there's it's it's make or break on one buck the entire season and then after that you've accomplished that goal so you are in the stage of maybe helping others or getting to, I don't know, giving back to the, uh, the bow hunting world, so to speak. And I think we may have talked about this before on, um, on one of the wired to hunt podcasts, but where do you feel that you are at now as a bow hunter? Yeah. So I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think a lot of us go through some type of set of stages like that some people skip one of those or they skip some of them or they go back and forth or something like that. But yeah, I think I've experienced something very much like that. And, um, and I don't know about you, but I feel like the past few years, especially even like since we've been like doing the wire done podcast where we've talked to so many people and we ourselves have talked about and thought about some of these things so much, I feel like I've fast forwarded through some of these stages a little bit. Um, maybe faster than it would have otherwise. So I definitely feel like I'm at that point where I don't know. I don't know if that what here's, here's where I'm at. Um, in some situations 
I am really at that point where I want to target like one specific buck. Yeah. You know, like my, my Michigan spots here where I've been able to follow some of these bucks or my Ohio lease where I've been able to follow some specific bucks. Um, I'm not like dead set on it 150%, but that's like my main goal. Um, I'm really, that's been something that's really fun. It's a really new challenge. There's a whole new element in trying to learn one deer that has really been interesting for me. Um, in some other situations, I'm still like trying to kill a certain age class. Um, I mean, in Michigan in general, when there's not one single deer I'm after, it's still not easy to, to kill a deer that's over three or four or five years old. So, you know, a few years ago, I was like, I just wanted to kill a three-year-old because I'd never done that before. And now I've killed some older deer. So now it's, I want to kill a four-year-old or now I want to kill a specific buck. Um, another thing I'm trying to do now is, um, hunt more public land. I've, you know, done some stuff out West. I've done a little bit of this in Michigan, a little bit in some other places, but now I'm thinking about how can I do some more public land stuff? Cause that's just another way of trying to stretch myself as a hunter, challenge myself as a hunter. Um, so I'm definitely way past that point when I want to kill a lot of deer. It's not about how many bucks I can kill or anything like that. Um, I think I'm over the fact of like, I know I can kill mature bucks. I've killed a good number of mature bucks now. So now it's, how can I challenge myself in new ways? And I think the challenge, um, yes, it's great to achieve a tough goal, but I think I enjoy the challenge because of what that means for the process. When you challenge yourself in a new way, you're forced to learn more. You're forced to try new things. You're forced to, to go through this whole process of hunting in, in a different way every time. That That's what really, really intrigues and excites me about hunting is that whole chess match. Um, so from like a specifically hunting standpoint, I'm definitely there. But then that last phase where you talked about wanting to give back, that's definitely somewhere that I've been, um, focusing a lot of my mental energy. Um, and I don't know if that's a career thing, um, or just a hunter thing, but you know, in my business, for example, um, I kind of followed a similar situation stages where, you know, eight years ago it was, wow, I'd love to someday, build a deer hunting or hunting related business. And then I got to the point where I could do that. And I said, I'd love to make a decent amount of money so I could pay for my hunting trips. And I was able to do that. And then I was like, Hey, I'd love to someday be able to make enough. I could quit my regular job and then I could do that. And then I was, Hey, I'd love to make enough money that I'm not going to bed scared every night. I'm going to lose my house. <laughs> and then, um, and, and then eventually now where I'm at now is okay. I, I, you know, knock on wood, um, the good Lord willing, I'm able to make ends meet now. And now really where my attention and energy is, is, is not so much focused on how can I make my business bigger. It's been a lot more, and this might be bad for my business maybe, <laughs> but the stuff I'm thinking about now is like, how can I help? Like, how can I actually make a meaningful difference? Um, right. I'm like, we talk about this a lot. Like I've become more and more like really, really focused on that and becoming much more aware of the challenges out there to hunting and to conservation and to wildlife and wild places. And so as much as I want to have achieve these personal hunting goals, um, I'm more and more thinking about, you know, how can I use this, you know, platform I've been so blessed to be able to build um, and have, how can I use whatever I've been given to, to do something good so that more people can enjoy these things so that my kids and grandkids can come to these places um, in the long term. That's, that's really where my head's at. Right. Right. I know for me, in the past 10 years of hardcore bow hunting, I have only killed four bucks, right? And there was a span uh, of time 
so I, I killed one in 2006. I'm looking at my wall here. I killed one in 2008, one in 2012, and one, and then one this year. So that's four bucks in uh, in ten years. With 2000, I'm going to say 2009, 2010, and 2000, uh, part of 2011, maybe even 2008, focused on one particular deer for the most part and putting a lot of eggs all in one basket. Uh, So I feel that I've done kind of a jump around where I was focused on, you know, introducing myself into hunting again after, you know, or bow hunting after kind of setting it aside during college, getting back into it in 2006. And then 2006, seven and part of eight were kind of a feel out process. I knew I wanted to shoot mature bucks and then I shot one. Then really focusing on one deer for a whole bunch of years, that deer ended up uh, getting harvested, which this is a spoiler uh, make sure you listen to the Wired to Hunt podcast uh, after you listen to this one or before you listen to this one, whatever. Anyway. Because um, we talk about that. Because we talk about that, yeah. And then, so after that, I kind of have bounced back to um, hunting basically a hit list. So back to a mature, you know, if it's mature, that's my goal every year. And I think, you know, I accomplished that this year and I kind of make my decisions at the beginning of every season. So I think this year I might try to focus on a higher tier of a a hit list again, if that makes sense, you know? So like every year, my goal uh, this year was to shoot a four-year-old or higher. I accomplished that goal. Um, Next year, I don't know if it's going to be a five-year-old or it's going to be a six-year-old or it's going to be, okay, I have quote-unquote five shooters. I'm only going to go for the top two, if that makes sense. You know, kind of of whittle down my – not necessarily go after one buck, but whittle down to less options. So, So tell me why. So tell me what what feelings did you have after killing this buck in 2016 or, you know, what thoughts you've had since then that have made you decide that you want to ramp it back up? Because like you said, you, yeah. you had a really high, really high difficult standards. You kind of drew them back a little bit more reasonably to four and a half and now you killed it and now you run a ramp it back up. Can you can you tell me more? Yeah, I mean, the reason I, I feel like I, I want to do that is because. I had a strategy in place for 2016 and it's a pretty simple strategy. It was observe my trail cameras, listen to what my trail cameras told me and then move in for the kill. Uh, I had to bounce around two nights and then I had a, uh, a run in with the deer that I went after and I shot him and killed him. Right? So that strategy and that plan worked. It was, a hitless deer or it met my goal of a four-year-old or, or higher. I think, I don't know what the taxidermist said. I think he said it could have been a five, five-year-old buck, but that's beside the point. You know, I, I put uh, a plan in place and I accomplished it. All right. So now for me, in order to, I feel in order to become a better version of what I have already accomplished, I need to make it harder. I need to go after 
more specific or details, you know, whether it's a, you know, two bucks or, or just one buck based off what, you know, my trail cameras are telling me in the summer and early fall, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. No, it makes sense. What? Okay. Tell me this. You live in Iowa. Yeah. Amazing place to hunt. Right. What happens if you've hit some kind of threshold here where last year things clicked for you, you were able to kill a four-year-old. What about if this year you're able to kill, you know, one of these target bucks you have and then the next year you do it and for the next like five years you're killing a a five or six-year-old, 150 or 170-inch buck year after year after year. Um, Do you see yourself ever trying a different kind of challenge after that? Like, switching to a traditional bow or hunting a different state, uh, or anything like that. Yeah, definitely. Traditional bow is on my radar. Um, I don't feel like I'm going to do it quite yet because I have some things like my goal. One of my goals is to go on a roll, right? Where you have, where you have a couple, you, you go two years where you kill two or three years where you consistently kill a mature buck or you consistently accomplish your goal. Right. Um, then I don't know. I don't even know if I've told you this, but trying to purchase a piece of property so I can hunt someplace and then come to my property. And in Iowa, you can get a landowner's tag yeah, and yeah. then accomplish a year where I take two mature bucks. Right. Right. Um, and then after that, you know, I definitely want to try to get into the trad uh, I, I talk with, uh, our buddies over at, Tra- uh, trad geeks, Kevin Morrow. Mm-hmm. I talk, I was talking with him today actually. And, uh, you know, he's like, dude, you'll love the trad life, so to speak. Right. And, uh, I want, I want to try that. And then definitely from a bow hunting standpoint within that timeline, I'm, my goal is to continue to make trips out of state and hunt some of these Western, um, you know, Western, uh, animals like elk and antelope and mule deer. Am I ever going to be able to convince you to come hunt Michigan? So everybody's, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know the, the reason I, the reason, you know, the people, people say to me, you know, you don't know what it's like. You don't know what it's like to hunt Michigan. You're right. I don't, I've never hunted that state. I've never hunted, uh, a piece of property, where the the deer are only one you know the highest the biggest buck you may see is a two-year-old hundred incher right Mm -hmm. um i've I've never hunted in a in a scenario like that um i've i've hunted with some i I share property and i've i've had run-ins with other hunters while i've been in the tree stand and have uh run in with my version of hunting pressure it's just the caliber of deer that i'm hunting are from a mature or an antler size are of a higher caliber. I mean, that's like, that's like saying, okay, dude, you are, uh, your, your wife is this, <laughs> this hot model, but I knew you were going to make a, right? I, I, go mean, here. <laughs> I know. Right. Uh, now we're going to have to ask you t- for her to gain 120 pounds and then you're going to be married to her. You know, like she must, she's got to have one hell of a personality at that point. <laughs> But you know, it's like, why would, why would a guy want to? I mean, <laughs> so you could, so you could appreciate your wife even more in the future, <laughs> right? I appreciate, 
I appreciate that. I mean, I, 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 I can't say I, I understand. I can't say I, um, I've ever walked a mile in those people's shoes, but I put myself in a position where I don't have to do that, right? Yeah, I'm blessed to be born in Iowa, but I knock on a shit ton of doors every year to put myself into a position where I have the opportunity to kill mature deer, right? Yeah. And how many, I mean, why do you, why do you go to Ohio, right? Yeah, man. It's to experience something different. Exactly. So I don't know if I, I don't know. It's just, I feel like I'm talking shit to the people who hunt Michigan, but I don't want to hunt Michigan. You know, I, <laughs> I, I, don't I have, blame I, you. have I, I have something going great here. I mean, and, that, and that's why everybody that I talk to from Michigan or from Pennsylvania is like, dude, I would love to hunt Iowa. I'm like, it's, it's possible. It just takes time and energy. And I'm going to put my time and energy in a place that has mature, big, big deer. I mean, yeah, I think, I think from a, from a becoming a better hunter standpoint, it would be, it would be an awesome challenge. I guess I'm just not there yet. I hope someday you kill so many big deer in Iowa that you take me up on it. (laughs) And then, and then, and then you could, and then you could, uh, like you said, it, it, it does force you to hunt very differently. Um, but it's kind of fun cause it, for me, it's fun because I can hunt here and occasionally complain about it or often complain about it. Um, but then there's always that other thing to look forward to. So there's like this really exciting idea of going to Iowa or Ohio or somewhere else. So it's, it's fun to have that greener pasture somewhere to look forward to and to go travel to, um, to your point, you're already in the greenest pasture there is. So there's not quite as much of that excitement in traveling to new places. And, And I actually really like being able to travel to places right um i mean it would be awesome to live there too and be able to do it all the time one of the things you know it's funny i would love to hunt iowa all the time you know but it'd be almost like the other parts of the year that i would love to experience too like just to go out in the summer and be able to drive roads and look for bucks and like when you go out in iowa and look for bucks at night at least where i've gone you see you know tons of bucks that are 140 or 150 or lots of 130s and stuff like that like here in michigan i'll drive for weeks and if i see one deer that's over pope and young you know over the course of weeks i'll be like oh that was a that was a great couple weeks um it's depressing compared to like one night in ohio where i'll see like 15 of those deer um i just love seeing deer like that that's just really cool to see those kinds of animals they're just super cool um so i'm jealous of that just as much as being able to hunt them i'll tell you what i'll make a deal with you yeah. If this podcast from a business standpoint ever because right now my main focus is hey, I have I have limited vacation, I have a certain amount of vacation. I have to put that vacation towards my family and towards my hunting uh activities, right? So I tell you what, if this podcast ever takes off to a point where I can quit my job and I can do this full time or or you know I am able to quit my nine, my quote unquote cubicle life and do something in the hunting industry. I will come to Michigan and hunt. All right. All right. When you get the, I like it. When you have that when extra I have, time, when I yep. have that extra time, I will come and do it. So, um, 
I just need you to start getting me the number of some high fence operations. And- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, dude, it'd be fun. It would, I would, I would love to host you down here and do some hunting and, uh, we could at least then, um, Oh, what's the word? We could commiserate for once about the same crappy hunting together. <laughs> right. Right. And again, I'm not talking shit on the guys who hunt Michigan. I just, I don't know. It's, I don't know a lot of guys who would do the same, if that yeah, makes sense. Yeah, and I mean, we we both I talk a lot of crap about Michigan too, and I say it, you know, sort of like truthfully, sort of kiddingly, you know, it's 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 a great state. There's yeah. there is actually some really good hunting, relatively good hunting here. It's just very different than some of these other states out west or in the Midwest, like Iowa or Kansas. There's there's a lot of different challenges, but it does force you to really really crank things up a notch and i think there are some very 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 good hunters here who oh yeah don't necessarily yeah and they might not have a bunch of big heads on the wall but the guys here that are consistently killing three-year-olds or 120 or 130 inch bucks if you find a guy here in michigan who has a wall full of 130s or 125 inch bucks that guy is an absolute stud right um because they there just are not many of those deer and the few that are out here are just on pins and needles Right. Amen. Amen. So, well, man, I tell you what, my, I can hear my kids screaming outside. Um, I heard like a kazoo or something. Yeah. Well, it's some, our, okay. In my community, it's the cool thing for everybody to get a damn golf cart and drive around the town in it. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'm not ever going to do that, but so my neighbor has one and he's in our driveway right now and the kids are honking the horn. Awesome. Golf cart. So <laughs> there's that. There's that. There's that. Mark you Canyon. Dan Johnson. Thank you very much for uh, spending an hour and 16 minutes and 42 seconds with me. Today. Hey, buddy. I had fun. I'm glad we yeah. could do it. It's fun to, to just BS. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And uh, just a quick shout out for the wired to hunt podcast let's see today if you're listening to this it's thursday the wired to hunt podcast is out today at some point too um it's with sam calora the guy who actually shot shipwreck um the buck that i was chasing in 2008 9 10 and 11 so uh, be sure you listen to that there's some cool info um on that as well but other than that man thanks again and uh we'll definitely have to do this again I enjoy the invite every time. Thank you, Dan. Keep up the awesome work, and uh, let's go shed hunting together soon. All right. Fact, fact, fact. All right. Put some, get some brownie points this week, so you can get away next weekend. <laughs> hey, man, I I redid my kitchen. That's a lot of brownie points right there. All right. You should be golden. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Right. All right, buddy. Thanks for having me. And there you have it. Huge shout out to Mark for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate him taking time out of his day to jump on my podcast huge shout out to ripcord arrow rests deerlab.com and exodus outdoor gear exodus trail cameras for uh, their continued partnership with this podcast without them uh, this becomes a little bit more difficult thanks to each and every one of you for taking time out of your day to download and listen to this podcast. I really appreciate it. Um, go to iTunes, leave a review of this podcast. Let me know what you think. Uh, check me out on 
Facebook. Check me out on Twitter. Check me out on Instagram, all the social media. I guess I do that. And um, be sure to listen to the last podcast that we did with Wild Edge Inc. And uh, we talked about a product called the Step Ladder. We are currently doing a giveaway, um, an eight-piece set. So be sure to uh, check out last the the previous podcast and uh, find out information how you can win an eight-piece set of that uh, the climbing their climbing set. So do that as well. Other than that, hopefully everybody has a great weekend. It looks uh, if you're in the Midwest, it sounds to me like the weather is going to get back to your typical late February, early March conditions. Um, Hopefully what that does is cause some antlers to drop. So when that crappy weather is over, we can all get out and pick up some sheds. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And remember to wear your damn safety harness. Have a good day.